You're listening to an L.A. Kings podcast. For more episodes of this and every other Kings program, visit lakings.com slash podcast. And welcome, everybody. Hope everyone is doing well. It's another episode of On the Sly. I am Rob Brender. Right up the middle this week, if we are lining up as we did a week ago, and we should set our lineup, I am playing first line center. You're on the right wing, Jim, because we're attacking uh, to our south, I guess it would be. And Jesse Cohen, who is producing the show, as he always does, and does a wonderful job, is lined up on the left. I hope you at least get a shot off at some point during today's game. Keep, keep in mind, though, Podcast, yeah. Much like NHL games, the position you start at doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the position you end at. That's There's a right. Lot of changing and weaving and back and forth. Well, it's good. We have versatility in this lineup. I'm not too worried about us. We're going to find a way through it. So much to discuss, Jim, on today's show. So much has gone on in the last what week and a half since we last convened, which is great. We're going to take a bite out of a whole lot of it. Um, Ouch. Wink, wink. Sorry, I had to Ouch. do that. Um, and let's start there because that was really kind of the big topic of conversation, certainly in this building and around the LA Kings for the last couple of weeks. And even though, as we've mentioned a few times over the course of the last few weeks on this show, we don't necessarily concentrate on the Kings. It still is a big topic of conversation. So funny enough, Jesse and I had been talking about a week prior to that incident about which direction we're going to go to lead off this show. And we had watched, I think it was the night before, LeBron James, who everyone knows, the most famous basketball player in the world currently, one of the best players of all time, get into an incident with the Detroit Pistons. And it's a player who no one has really ever heard of outside of Detroit, a kid named Isaiah Stewart. And the night uh, of that game, LeBron turns at the free throw line. For those who haven't seen it, they're lined up. And he accidentally, he says, smacks the kid in the face with a backhanded fist it causes a gash under the kid's eye. Stewart, he winds up going ballistic, sees blood flowing down, and essentially can't be stopped. He's enraged. He goes after LeBron. And so it brought up with Jesse and I the idea of what the importance level is of having a player who's not willing to back down from anyone. He doesn't care if it's LeBron James on the other side. Now, there may have been a little bit more involved in this case because, again, he just probably was enraged seeing the blood and thought, I can't be the victim of this and I'm just going to go after him. But it did, again, it conjured up the idea with Jesse and I of always working as a team. And that is the Gibbs rule for this show. I know you're a big fan of NCIS. Always work as a team. We have a player who gets hit by the most famous player in the world and says, I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to defend my team. We don't care that we're the worst in the league and they're supposed to be one of the best. We're not going to back down. How important is it, before we get to the incident with Brendan Lemieux and Brady Kachuk, just to have a player or players that are going to say, you know what, I'm going to defend my team at all costs? It's foundational. It goes to the core of any group that is going to work together. And sometimes... You don't have those types of players. And if you don't, you're not going to win. And, you know, in that instance, I would assume LeBron James's elbow was considered more of a basketball play than things that developed after that. Uh, because, you know, whether he did it on purpose, he's, you know, boxing out. It's, you know, elbows get thrown around all the time. But, no, you have to stand up for it. I think in this instance, there's a little bit more motivation to continue to stand up for it because it is LeBron James. 
because you can send a message uh, more specifically that it doesn't matter who I'm going to make my stand. And so for that reason, I think that's something, again, that's foundational. And there are teams that it happens naturally. And then there's our teams that have to manufacture that. You want the natural versus the manufacturer, but you'll take the manufacturer because once it's there, hopefully it doesn't leave. And especially as a team like the Pistons again, and we're going to turn this into a hockey thing, don't worry, in just a second, but the idea of having, again, the worst team, one of the worst teams in the league for so many years now, saying, you know what, or having a guy basically saying, you know what, I don't care where we are in the standings. And it can be for a hockey team, right? You can have one of the worst teams in hockey. We can have a rebuilding team. Let's actually put ourselves in in the position where the Kings are right now. They're trying to make their way into being a contender again. But you have a player like Brendan Lemieux who says, you know what? I'm going hard every single game. I'm an energy guy. I'm going to defend my teammates at all costs every single game, period. And did he go over the top of the biting stuff? Of course he probably did, and he got suspended five games for it. But the idea that he was defending a teammate, and he's never going to back down from anyone. I like that about a player, don't you? Uh, once again, it's if it's not on your team, then you you have a crack in your foundation. It has to be there. And believe me, every team has it. Sometimes it is more apparent than others. I mean, to be completely down the middle here, so I'm switching positions with you now. All right. Brady Kachuk is on one of the worst teams in the league, and he felt he was standing up for his goaltender. It was a spray of... By no means, I, I'm just taking this completely down the middle. Lazat makes a stop, a little spray on the goaltender. They're in last place. They've had an off year. They went through COVID. They're not winning. He goes after Lazat, and that's when Lemieux has to do his thing. Uh, all of those are okay. That's okay. And again, if you don't have it, and this is not big news to anyone, but if you don't have it, you're not going to win. And they have it in Brendan Lemieux. I think they have it. I mean, in watching him, you see that kind of player, right? There are, there are different ways to be that. What Brendan does have that many other players do not, meaning the other ways are finishing checks, blocking shots, one-on-one battles, winning face-offs, looking a guy in the eye in a scrum instead of just backing off. But Brendan can also drop the gloves. And that's one thing that he has that – for instance, with the Kings group, maybe the only guy that is known for that. Hmm. And then you bring it back to last year, it would be McDermott and Lemieux when he joined the team at the end of the year. Nowadays, you basically only have one guy that does that on each team. Some teams probably don't even have that anymore. Yeah. But you have one. Uh, again, just changing of generations. When I played, it was six or seven guys that had, that had the ability to really be effective dropping their gloves. And that's why in... General, another big picture thing is it's not whether you win the fight or not. It is not. It's whether you get involved in the fight. And that's where your teammates respect you. And and there's a whole bunch of things. I'll I'll take it further. And just something I heard. It's happened to me a couple times. It happened to me on the ice with Marty McSorley. And if I can, Marty may have been the best enforcer ever. Because the things he did, Marty would do it at the end of a game when you're up 7-1. Down 7-1, that's normal. When you're up 7-1, he would do it. He would go after someone. He's thinking ahead to the next game, to the next series, to the next week. He's thinking ahead. What I'm about to say is very important, and it came up the other day. 
Marty would tell you, he would show you that he's there to protect you, but he would also tell you. He said, Jim, you get any trouble whatsoever, you get out of there, and I'm, I'm in. Wow. He would tell you that. Alex Iofalo mentioned the other day, they were talking about Brendan Lemieux, Rel- relatively new to this group, came in last year, didn't really, you know, intermingle with the group at that point because of other issues, had surgery in the offseason, comes back healthy. Alex said, yes, he's going to stand up for every guy, but it was a little thing, and to me, it hit me right in the heart. He also said, and Brendan will tell you that he'll do that. And to me, that is huge. They prove it on the ice by doing it, but to hear that verbally from your teammate, hey, Alex, you get involved in anything? Get your butt out of here, and I've got mine in there, and don't worry about a thing. The confidence that I that, that is huge. But again, back to Marty, he would... He, I mean, I remember being in a game and I, I, someone's, you know, end of a scrum. And I'm looking at Marty and Marty's, I thought he was looking at me. He was looking through me. <laughs> I'm saying, Marty, no, no, everything's okay. It's good. <laughs> Marty's thinking about the next game. He's thinking about, we've already got the win. Two points are no longer in jeopardy. I'm going to go get that guy. So next time it doesn't happen. And, and I think those are the types of things that but the verbalization from your enforcer to tell you that he will, I think that just goes that extra step further. So when it comes to the incident between Lemieux and Kachuk, again, he winds up biting him, he gets suspended for it. And after the game, before the suspension was known clearly, Kachuk answers the questions with the media in the post-game Zoom or maybe it was in the locker room, I don't know. Either way, he's asked about it and Kachuk says, and I'll give the direct quote here, this is the one time I'm going to answer this, Kachuk said, it was the most gutless thing somebody could ever do. This guy, you can ask any one of his teammates. Nobody ever wants to play with him. Speaking of Lemieux, this is a bad guy and a bad teammate. He focuses on himself all the time. This guy's a joke. He shouldn't be in the league. This guy's gutless. No other team wants him. He's going to keep begging to be in the NHL, but no other team is going to want him. He's an absolute joke, and it goes on from there. So right, I'll end right. the quote there. So clearly frustrated, clearly at that point doesn't have a very good relationship, I would imagine, with Lemieux. But afterwards, we found out that King's players were lining up basically to talk to the media and say the exact opposite, that they do like this guy, that they do want to play with this guy. What's your take on that? Well, it just, it, it brings me to the, the contrasting or the use of the word class or, or, and maybe that's not even the word he, he uses some other words, he being Kachuk. To me, I'm going to summarize it. It appears to me that Kachuk felt what Lemieux did was classless on the ice. I take that to the comments you just read. I believe that was classless of Kachuk to go public with those types of words. He can. He did. That's fine. He's frustrated. Good. Do it. But if you're talking about maybe, again, another phrase, honor among thieves, Kachuk leads the league in penalty minutes. He's no angel here. But to make personal comments about what's going on in another team's locker room, I think that's classless. Whether they're true or not true, if you play with Brady Kachuk now, are you ever going to talk to him? Because now what you say to him might get out sometime. He's going to, he's going to get frustrated again and spew this stuff. Oh, he, can you ever trust? He, he's spewing that he should not get involved in this. So I think that was not showing much class by Brady. I understand he was frustrated. I, I know that. And again, he maybe even more than the incident. You know, his team's not going well this year. He has a lot of things on his mind. 
Having said that, when Brendan Lemieux is down on the ice, he's faced with a decision here. And Kachuk is, you know, they topple down because they were pulled down and then one of the linesmen was involved. And it looked like from the NHL video that he bit him. The, I don't have a lot of experience in this at all. Although through the hockey, it has happened before. It's not, doesn't happen all the time. It's very rare. But another thing also happens, and that's gouging, which is awful. Use of your hands and scratching and clawing. I'm not saying that happened prior to the bite. May have happened after. It just, it's one of those things. I'm going to go to a guy, Mike Rupp, Sirius XM, NHL Network. Mm-hmm. He was asked about it. And he said, guy puts his hand in my mouth. I can bite him. Oh, yeah. Anything else? No. But if he puts his fingers, I think he said fingers in his mouth, I can. Now, and my friends over the last five days have been, why would he bite him? Well, there are instances where it is a last resort. Don't want it to ever happen again. But I'm just saying there are instances where in hockey it can be acceptable. And it's happened. It's happened many times. When I times. hear the, my, myself say the word acceptable, that's the wrong thing. It's, it's something that is, again, the last resort. It's the last resort you could ever think. So when I hear Mike Rupp say that, who, and he said, he, Mike Rupp prefaces by he's never been involved in a biting incident himself, but he knew others that were. So, Well, and you brought up a fascinating point that it has happened before. And you brought up the name Marty McSorley, and it actually happened in an incident with Marty McSorley. And he's a guy, obviously, who was in the league many years ago. And so it, maybe it plays to what you're just saying, well, that things have changed a little bit over time. Well, again, we're, we're talking about, I think I'm talking about the honor among thieves issue. Right. Kachuk leads the league in penalty minutes. He gets his hand bit. I, I just think, to a certain extent, Brady was trying to come off as this angel in this situation. First of all, he initiated the actual altercation. So he started it. By no means would I ever say, and I'm, it's not acceptable to bite. It's not. But there are some scenarios that you go through. So when you take it that far. To me, the comments he made post-game. So the story you're alluding to, Marty McSorley, for years tried to get Eric Lindros to fight. Mm-hmm. Marty's doing his job, going after a big guy, probably trying to take him off the ice. He said, for years, it never happened. Finally, they get a chance to get, and they're, they're going at it, and there's an allegation that Lindros bites McSorley. Brian Burke, who is the vice president in the NHL at the time, in charge of suspensions, which nowadays would be player safety. Back then, it was not. Basically, kind of holding a hearing. You take as much and gather as much information as you can. And part of that was a conversation with Marty. He calls Marty up. Marty, you know, we're about to throw the book at Lindros here, but I need you to tell me. You're the last guy here. You need to tell me he bit you. We have some evidence, but we don't have that definitive video evidence that, you know, absolutely shows it. So we need you just to corroborate linesmen, officials, what happened. And Marty says, 
well, you know, he kind of hesitates. You know, I don't know what I should do. And then, so Burke asked him again, second time. Marty's heen and hawing. And so Brian Burke finally asked Marty a third time, Marty, if we're going to do our jobs here and get this done and really punish and suspend Eric Lindros, I need you to tell me that he bit you. And Marty's answer was, he did not bite me, but you can send a message to Bobby Clark, then the general manager of the Philadelphia Flyers, that he owes me one. So there, as odd as it may sound, to me that's honor among thieves. Marty knows he's not an angel here, even though in this instance he's the guy that has been injured, so to speak. He doesn't take it out of school. He keeps it in school. And I think that's where, when Brady made the comments he did publicly, I've heard that type of chirping on the ice from many times over the years. Ah, yeah, no one likes you, but, you know, what's going on? All those types. You've heard that many times. Uh, but well, to go public you. with that, I, I, I just, does it take away from what Lemieux did? Maybe not. Mm-hmm. Although, again, I think there are times where, like Mike Rupp was talking about, when you, you get hands in the mouth, finger, then there's, because now you're, you're, you're gouging and you're, all that type of stuff. Again, I don't think there's video evidence that happened in the Kachuk-Lemieux thing. I don't think that's a... The linesmen were so much on top of people that we couldn't really see what's going on. So I'm not... All I'm saying, the potential is there for that. And that would delete. So, but then to go public later, uh, it just I, just... I just wish he hadn't done that. Is this happening because there aren't enforcers really in the league anymore? Uh, yeah, we, we, that's a whole other conversation. But I think, I think we're by that. I think we're by that. No, uh, biting happens once every five to seven to eight years. Mm. It's not a problem. It's not a problem in the league. It is so far an outlier that it's not even worth the discussing. I understand your bigger point on the enforcers, but I think we're, that's gone too. Sure. That has been gone so long. It's still a part of the game. I believe it still should be part of the game. But, um, yeah, I, I don't think it. I don't think it has an effect. Both Kachuk and Lemieux have proven they're willing to look the other guy eye to eye and drop the gloves. Lemieux's not a hit and run pest. He'll drop the gloves and stand there and go toe to toe. Kachuk, same way. And for a guy who leads the league in penalty minutes, he provides a lot of offense too for his team. He's the captain of his team. Not downplaying who's good and who's bad. But uh, no, I, I, I think that's not the area to go into the enforcer. That would, we would have to go back 20 years and take it through year by year by year and what's happened. Uh, fighting just does no longer have the same impact on the game as it once did. So well, then you don't need the enforcers. But good on the Kings teammates, by the way, to stand up for a guy who's clearly standing up for them on the ice. And that was one of the things that we, we certainly wanted to make a point of is that Kings teammates were lining up again to speak on his behalf well, after those comments. They, they see the value. That Brendan brings. They see the value. Sure. They know what it's like. And I'll reiterate once again, for him to go to Alex Iofalo, or at least Alex Iofalo, be part of a conversation where Lemieux says, I've got you, and he tells him that to his face, that's what you want. All right, so another Gibbs rule to get to this week. We have two, not just one. We're really looking to please you this week with your NCIS love. Bend the line. Don't break it. 
I don't remember the number. Do you remember the number, 14. Jesse? It was 14? Okay, number 14 on the Gibbs rules. We wanted to talk about embellishment a little bit this week. Um, can a player, and, and the reason is because I think a lot of fans are confused by it. Can a player embellish even if there is a penalty called? Yeah, again, after it happened recently, a couple games in a row uh, with Kupari and then Kempe. And uh, yes, and I received a lot of tweets during the game about that. And yes, the, the main issue is people, I, I would say that's not that they don't understand it. People don't believe that both can happen in the same play. I think it can. I mean, there's reasons for it. There's tangible reasons for it. First of all, just to where it might, you have the foul. And many times when the, a player is fouled, they're unaware of whether the referee saw it or not. They don't know if it's going to be called. So what do they do? They take in an extra step and they embellish. To me, the two ways to detect or come up with the opinion that a player is embellishing, the first thing would be flailing of the arms. The arms are just shooting out in, an, in a way that is drawing attention, but really has nothing to do with how you play the game of hockey. And the second one is, which does the player who is embellishing feet go forward or backward, or what they do with their feet and how they get down to the ice? Mm. And I think in both cases against the Kings, you could argue that the player did embellish it. Can it be happening on this? Can you call the penalty for the infraction of restraining and then the embellishment at the same time? Yes, they are two separate incidents, completely separate, that happened within the span of two seconds or three seconds of each other. But they're dealt with separately. And I, I have no problem seeing that. I think it's only logical that you would do that. Yes, you're fouled, but you took it upon yourself to try to show up the referee and embellish the situation. We don't want that in our game, right? Mm. We don't. We don't want that. We don't want it to become soccer. We don't want that to happen. So I think there should be a rule in which the referee can frown upon that. And over time... And the NHL does keep track of players, even if they're not penalized for embellishment. They have video proof of the one thing they think a guy was embellishing. They can put that, and they, then they, you know, it builds up. Then you finally get fined. Then you can get suspended. Then your coach can get suspended. Uh, you know, it's never got that far, but they just want to make sure it doesn't happen. You don't want the embellishment. You just don't want that because then it makes the referee's job even more difficult. Is it looked at as almost, for lack of a better term, cheap? Uh, in, in hockey, it is. Again, in soccer, we know. We know in soccer it is what they would call part of the game, mm. much like hot, uh, fighting is part of the game. In, you, you are mm. penalized for it, but you don't get kicked out of the game necessarily. Same in soccer, right? You can get an embellishment yellow card. You can get about you know. It just, it leads me to another tangent, and I, I rarely ever do this because I wouldn't want as an announcer and analyst. My biggest pet peeve, soccer ex-player analysts who complain about decisions made by a referee on the field regarding whether it was a foul or not, whether it was a contact or not, whether it was embellished or not. And they have the video in front of them on replays. Mm -hmm. 
So they have that alternative of the replay. They, it's not real time they're making the call. These are coming from players who spent 75% of the time on the field trying to deceive the official <laughs> or officials. I mean, let's face it. Right. Anytime there's contact, whether it's a foul or not is debatable, but then I would say 75% of the time there's an embellishment of the actual fact, the actual foul. So that that's part of their game. And then they get mad at the official when they can't figure it out. Well, how, how are you supposed to figure out every single time, whether it's an embellishment, not embellishment, was there contact, wasn't there contact, did, did, did the heels hit, did they just clip together, or did the guy, you know, he's going for the ball, didn't get the ball. That, that really irks me. If you didn't spend 75% of the time playing, trying to deceive the official, and made the same comments, I'd have no problem with it. But you know what they're... And then even when the ref gets it right, they don't give him credit. Right. They don't. <laughs> so the ref actually got, wow, that was really close. That was really cool. Yeah, but he got it right, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Uh, so, yeah. But we, we want it out of the game. Uh, it has it to is be. cheap. Yeah. It, it has is. to be so hard to call. So hard for an official to call. And, and it was brought up the other night. Uh, and it's a great point. Why is embellishment not called alone? It's fair. We very rarely see that. And that's something that... You know, we could figure out, you know, I, I think they could call it more. But now you're putting a ref into a position of calling something based on something that didn't happen. And there's a whole bunch of gray area things there. Have you, and it kind of goes back to the point of it being cheap and people looking at it like, oh, come on, what are you doing out there? Have you, and you don't have to name names, found a player, whether it was a teammate or not, that clearly was embellishing, whether it was once, twice, three times, where you said, how do I respect this guy on the ice? Oh, no, no. I, I don't know about I don't think it goes that far. I don't think you you get upset. You get mad. Res, loss of respect. Yeah, I, I don't Even if it was someone that was doing it over and over and over again. Well, like, there are players that build up reputations for that. Sure. There's no question. You know, that's, that's the way it is. In all honesty, Dustin Brown had that reputation for years where he would – you know, the head would fling back or he would go, you know, and then he fought his way through it to the point where it's no longer there. But I'm sure it was explained to him, and that's something that he had to work through and get through. I remember playing in the World Junior Championships over in Finland. This is 1979. And we're playing against, I don't know, Denmark or Switzerland, and a guy just dives, like, completely. And I get the penalty for the trip, and... So on the way to the penalty box, I dove. I just dove. I, said, <laughs> I, I, I mean, this is... Now, keep in mind, these are European teams with a lot of soccer in their culture. So they, that was part of their game. And the officials were from Europe, so they didn't... You know what? They probably are so used to seeing it, it was part of their game. And um, But, I, you know, I, I don't know if a player lost respect. Back in my, you know, the 70s before me, Bill Barber on the Philadelphia Flyers... Great player, Hall of Fame player, was had you know he went down a lot, but I don't think he lost respect. He ended up in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, played for the Bullies and he went down like yeah, that yeah, a lot. Yeah, My yeah. goodness, I mean, talk about pot calling the kettle black and doing stuff you probably shouldn't be doing over the edge. All right, so hopefully that kind of clears up embellishment. A well, little bit you know, for the folks it, out it's there, there I, and I am. I just think it can. Bottom line, there's no reason why you can't call both on the same play. 
Yeah. Because they're separate incidents apart from each other that are called and handled separately. Makes complete sense. Well, well described. One other rule we want to get to on this week's show. And this one I find to be much more confusing than embellishment. And this happened in the Kings game on Tuesday against the Ducks. It was a high stick. Puck was touched by a high stick. And for those, again, who didn't see that game, the Kings are trying to come back. It was in the third period, if I recall. Uh, Carl Grundstrom is in front of the net. There's a shot taken from the point. He winds up touching the puck with a high stick. Clearly a high stick. Puck was, uh, or stick was over the crossbar, rather. And he deflects it down. It goes off the pads of the goaltender, deflects back into Grundstrom's leg, goes between the goalie's legs, is then touched by a Ducks defender. He's trying to play the puck away from the goal line. It goes off the back of the goalie and into the net. Right. Initially called a goal. They go to replay review, and it winds up getting overturned because the league determined that it was touched by a high stick and it was a continuation of that play. Very confusing, and, and I'm right there it's, in that book. Yeah, the, the, the confusing part is this. Yeah. Is the interpretation of possession and control. High stick, no question. Hits the goaltender, Gibson, no question. But he did not have possession in, and control. So it continues the play. Then hits Grundstrom once again. But it just knocks off his skate. He got no possession control. So the play continues. To that point, I think the NHL, the officials on the ice, I think they had it correct. Shattenkirk, the defenseman. The puck is rolling to go over the line. And there's no question it's going to go over the line. He reaches out with the backhand of his stick and bats the puck away from the line. It's on his stick for a split second. But he accomplishes exactly what he set out to do, which was prevent a goal. The puck was going one way, his stick bounced the puck the other way, and if it didn't hit Gibson again, he would have cleared it to the sideboards. Hmm. I mean, he would have, but then it hits the goal. So the interpretation that the referees came up with, they're in consultation with Toronto and the Situation Room, but the referees made the call this time. Their interpretation was that Shattenkirk did not have possession or control, and for that reason, you go right back to the high stick. You mentioned it, no question, high stick, disallowed goal. I completely disagree with it. As I said on the air, I was confused by a whole bunch of things because I understand interpretation of possession control is not black and white. Hence the word interpretation. Mm. But the bat, Shattenkirk accomplishing what he set out to do, to me, is the definition of possession and control in that instance. And I think the officials got it wrong. I'm more upset because it's not a real-time decision. They had a chance to go and look at it and replay, spend a lot of time at it. Um, I would make the assumption that this is a teaching tool for the NHL. I think they got it wrong. And I assume that clip will be shown around the league and they'll try to get on the same page of what everyone believes is possession and control in that instance. But that's, it went against the Kings. They were on a roll at that point in the game, ended up losing in the shootout. But I, I just unfortunately think that uh, this is a missed call. And, uh, you know, when it becomes a missed call on an actual goal, that becomes even more important. But I, I think it got, they got it wrong. If I were in a court of law and had to prove 
possession and control, uh, with a preponderance of the evidence. I would even go beyond a reasonable doubt. I think it was clear that Shattenkirk did what he wanted to do, which shows to me that's control, that's possession, and should have been allowed as a goal. Does there not need to be a way to clarify it so it is black and white, possession and control? There, I think, to me, did the player accomplish what he intended to do? The eye test on this one is, on a delayed penalty, when the team that has the delayed penalty against them retouches the puck, when do you blow that down? The rule there is possession and control. Well, I believe if you're a defender, and hopefully I can explain this, so uh, the opposition is trying to make a cross pass, delayed penalty on my team, and in making that cross pass, I reach out with my stick and just nick it and get a tip on it. And the pass does not connect. Mm. I think that's possession and control because I accomplished, I prevented them from making a pass. It didn't just bounce off my skate. I intended to get my stick in the passing lane and get a tick on that puck. Now, that's my definition. I know a lot of people, when they see that in the game, they say, oh, he didn't have it long enough. He didn't. Well, he accomplished what he wanted to do. That's my definition. I'm sure others have differing ones. And that's where you get into it. Is there a way you can make it black and white? You can do a whole bunch of things, but there's so many different scenarios that come up. And I think that's the reason there. Uh, I think I, I think it's one of those, like goaltender interference, where we live with the gray area. By the way, you said you're a lawyer. Gibbs rule number 13 says never trust lawyers. And never, never, involve. never involve lawyers, rather. Never involve lawyers. Again, once again, my use of the word if. If I were in a courtroom. <laughs> oh, was, you got to get that in there. Uh, interestingly enough, just to, to finish up on that topic of possession. I was watching a game about a week ago where a goal was disallowed because it was ruled offside. Player had a puck go into his skates, redirected the puck clearly with his skate, and was going to touch it with his stick. But prior to being able to get a stick on it, he was deemed to be offside. The puck had gone into the zone after he was already in. But he had touched the puck off his skate prior to getting into the zone. And the league, again, went to a replay review. And in Toronto, or the officials determined that it was not a goal because he was offside, even though a lot of people thought that was possession. Do we not have to trust that the players have so much skill that the intent is almost always there to make a next move just by simply touching the puck? As you said, no. just by getting a stick on it. Even. No. No, I, I think there are times when it just glances. It just bounces. It mm. just deflects. There is no control. There is no possession. I think it happens a lot. But, again, I didn't see the exact play you're talking about, so it's difficult to, to go. And that's where, out of ten linesmen, Five might have had it one way and five might have had it the other way. Uh, I would give the benefit of the doubt to the player in that instance because obviously he's trying to get himself onside and then reattack quickly, correct? Mm -hmm. Correct. And he can. They are skillful enough. But I still think there are instances where it is just a glance or a bounce and not possession control. Amazing. I mean, you talk about... Case by case. Case by case. you got to take it that way and that's... You know, we don't want our game to slow down every time to have that type of thing and take too much time to review, but there is a case-by-case -case basis. 
And it, it's a fascinating play because it's one of those that it didn't seem like anybody had the answer. You know, everybody is wondering, everybody had an opinion, and ultimately what was ruled, I think, disappointed just about everybody involved, including, I think, even the Ducks broadcasters who probably thought the same thing. I think that the high-stick issue against the Grundstrom disallowed goal is difficult very tough. for anyone to prove that that was not possession and control. I think that's very difficult. Obviously, it, I mean, I believe a mistake was made. But in that scenario, you can't recorrect that mistake in that in that time. You know, I don't think there should be, you know, like baseball, you know, a chance to appeal and that very, you know, ever works. Yeah. Um, Worth mentioning, by the way, great comeback by the Kings. It has nothing to do with that no. play, but to overcome that yeah. and still come back. Yeah, yeah. phenomenal, phenomenal. And, and they... They went to some simple plays, all those types of things. Uh, but just when I'm saying that, the only time, like, what happens if that happened in overtime and the game would be over based on the goal or non-goal? That's where then, then maybe there should be an appeal process. What about overtime in a playoff game? Oh, boy. Now you're really getting deep here. Yes, agreed. Uh, that covered all the topics I think we had in mind, right? Did we miss anything? Anything you want to uh, throw out there? I think we pretty much got it all, right? Did we get into any rules at all? Well, okay. you wanna, yeah, we, we hit on, I think, three rules. Yeah, we could have touched on Brad Marchand. We didn't even get to the Slewfoot stuff. Maybe we'll save that for the next one for the folks and, uh, and touch on that. This was fun. Uh, appreciate it as always. I think we, uh, we took a bite out of the whole show. And, uh, you know what I had? Tr- yes. I had Boston because we touched on it on our last podcast. What's that? They're having a difficult time finding secondary scoring. They're having a difficult time, you know, who's going to... Well, they've relied on that top line so much for so many years. Oh, yeah. They have not developed. They've not put other players into a situation where they can experience that pressure during... And then when it comes to crunch time and they those secondary players don't do it, they get criticized. And I think the Bruins have to look at themselves a little bit and maybe break up that line or or... Change the ice time allotment because we brought it up a while ago, right? In our, you know, the triple crown line and how much they're used. And, but and having said that, I know if you're the coach, why the heck wouldn't you throw them on the ice? They're yeah. doing. They're called the perfection line in Boston. If you're perfect, keep throwing them out there. But you know, it takes more in hockey. There's that semblance of you need the all twenty, and uh, if you don't nurture and develop the other guys. It's tough on them. So I just wanted to get that in. Didn't Colorado have that issue as well from a couple of years ago where they talked about we have to break up Ranton and McKinnon and Landeskog, and if we yeah. don't do it, we're not going to be a better team. Edmonton with Dreisaitl and McDavid and whether yeah. they should play together. I think, you know, power play, they get their opportunities, then you split them apart, get crunch time, you can put them back together. Uh, but, you know, when you talk about building a team, sometimes you need to sacrifice a win here and there in order to build a longer-term strength of your team. Uh, because you're not putting those players into that pressure situation. And then when they do get there, they fail. And you wonder why they fail. Well, they've never been there before. Yeah, it's a great point. And uh, for those who follow the Bruins, Cam Neely has been going off about them for the last couple of weeks. Every time he talks to the media, and it's mostly about the goaltending. I think there's some concern there with when, Swayman and Allmark. When teams are losing, and we brought this up in another, another podcast. Yeah. The Vancouver Canucks, we were talking. When teams are losing... And the eye test doesn't tell you much or or the analytics don't tell you much. It's goaltending. 
It's always the goaltending. It has to be, right? <laughs> Got to find somebody else in net. Easy to blame. It is. All right, this was fun. Hope everybody enjoyed it. For Jim and Jesse, I'm Rob, and we will see you on the next On the Sly. 